Welcome to episode 294 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to remind us that God is jealous and why that's an absolutely great thing. Let's dive in. In the last episode, I mentioned the fact that I've started a new series in Daily Thunder called Behold Our God. It's studying the names of God and how the names all throughout scripture reveal the majesty and the glory and the renown of Jesus Christ. Well, this week I've been preparing for one of those names to be given in Daily Thunder, and it was the name Kana, which means jealous. God says that one of his names is jealous because he is a jealous God. Well, typically when I have that thought of jealousy, it's always in the negative, but here's what is so profound is that in scripture, it is not a negative. It's not based out of insecurity or envy or anger. Rather, this is a great attribute of our precious King. Well, all that being said, one of the things I did to prepare for this particular name is I listened to a message that I gave last summer in a different series called Soul Drift. And in that we were working through idolatry and adultery and what does it mean to fully give ourselves an exclusive devotion to Jesus Christ? Well, one of those studies I did was on this name, Kana. And so to prepare for the Names of God series this year, I just went back through and was listening to that particular study. And I was just deeply blessed and encouraged and challenged. And I just had the thought it would be actually a great blessing to put it here on the podcast. So this is going to be a little bit longer of an episode, and I apologize for that. But I think it is well worth our time to freshly be reminded that God is jealous and it is a very good thing. So here is my previous study on the name of God, Kana. So let me just kind of set the stage for Exodus 34, and this is just high-level highlights from these chapters. But in Exodus 32, we have the scene where Moses had gotten the commands of the Lord and comes down and breaks the tablets, <clears throat> and there's the whole golden calf scene, right? That they're committing adultery or idolatry against the Lord. And Moses breaks the tablets, and then what you see in Exodus 33 is Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. Exodus 34, Moses goes back up on the mountain, cuts the new tablets of stone, and, and in, in the middle of all of that scene, we have this in Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. This is what it says. Uh, Moses is on the mountain, and Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yah think about this, this is God speaking to Moses. And God said, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps his loving kindness, his hesed, for thousands of generations, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along at our midst, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own inheritance. Ponder the scene. Uh, this, this passage is increasing in its profundity to me. Uh, partly it's because right before this, earlier in Exodus, Moses had asked God, God, would you show me your glory? 
Now, we understand it's in the context of idolatry, right? That they made the golden calf, all this kind of stuff. But when Moses goes back up on the mountain, right, to, to re-carve out the Ten Commandments, God says, okay, I'm going to show you my glory. And what does God do? He gives Moses his name, Yahweh. But he packs it with all of this definition, this content. And he says, do you know who I am? I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I abound in hesed. And there's this, there's this beautiful profundity in all of this. And so what you begin to see is that God is revealing his nature and his heart and his, his attributes. And he's just saying, oh, this is who I am. And I love this. Moses, when he, when he sees the glory of God through his name, which is beautiful to me, Moses postures himself in this position. He kneels down before the Lord, and he has this declaration of just saying, Lord, you, you are in our midst, even though we are full of sin, even though we're a stiff-necked people. Take us as your possession. Now, hold on to this. Jump to a few verses later in verse 12. This is what it says. God is speaking, and he says, Beware, lest you cut or make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. Rather, you are to tear down their altars and shatter their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god. And then here's the statement. Listen to this. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you cut or make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice. Did, did you catch this statement? Look, look at this statement again. This is, this is so profound to me. For you shall not worship any other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Kana. His name is Jealous. He is a jealous God. That language is really interesting to me. <clears throat> Again, it's in the context of, of idolatry. God says you're not to have any other gods before me. Uh, that, that you're not to have any graven images. Why? Because you are my possession. You are mine, says the Lord. And I am jealous so much so that I, Yahweh, my name is jealous. That idea of God being jealous shows up five times in Scripture. And I just want to read these to you really quickly just so that we can have some context. But, but listen to what God says about who he is, about his nature and this idea of jealousy. He says in Exodus 34, the one we just read. Oh, uh, sorry, Exodus 20. This is the uh, Ten Commandments scene. It says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth or beneath or in the water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them. Why? For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, oh, but showing hesed, loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the one we read earlier, Exodus 34 again. For you shall not worship any other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In Deuteronomy Chapter 4, Moses declares, For Yahweh, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Or later in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. 
And then the last one is in chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. It says, You shall not walk after other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For For Yahweh, your God, in the midst of you is a jealous God. Isn't it interesting how the context of God's jealousy is often spoken in light of idolatry? Don't have idols. Hey, don't worship the gods around you. Why? Because I'm jealous. Hey, hey, my name is jealous. Hey, so hey, don't, don't walk like the culture walks. Don't live like the culture lives. Don't have the idolatry like the culture has. Why? Because I'm a jealous God. Here, here's a statement from Dan that I think really started triggering a lot of this for me. And I'm like, I don't really get it. So, so here's, here's Dan's statement. Where would we be if God was not jealous? And when Dan said that, this was years ago, I was like, okay, Dan, I know you're a lot smarter than I am. I don't understand. Why is it that jealousy is such a good thing? Why, why is it that if, if God was not jealous, that, my, that actually my life is threatened? Like, like why, why is this such a good thing? Have you ever thought about jealousy? Jealousy in today's culture is often associated with like envy or anger, right? So I, I see something over there that I really want and they have it and I don't. And so it's, it's, it's envious. Or there's this idea that uh, here's this guy and he's jealous over his girlfriend. And so he's just angry all the time because, you know, he's, he's afraid that she's going to go off and do something with someone else. And, and so he's just, do you realize that's not biblical, that's not biblical jealousy, and when you get into this idea of jealousy, well, let, me, let me say it this way. Jealousy is often seen as a negative attribute and the result of personal or relational insecurity. So as such, we presume that God must be insecure and likely an abuse of God. But godly jealousy, whether in God or in humans, is not a negative, but a positive attribute. And get this. Without godly jealousy, we become passive and thus prone to idolatry, adultery, and other threats to our relationships. The term jealousy shows up 90 t- about 90 times in Scripture. And, and of those 90 times, 64 of the times it's used, it's, it's in the positive. And what's interesting of the 64 times it's used positively in Scripture 46 of those are humans having a godly jealousy towards something or someone. A lot of times in, in, the, in the scriptures, it's translated as zeal. That this person had zeal. What does that mean? They had jealousy towards something. Uh, let me, again, give you this statement. Look at this. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall not worship any other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is jealous. What's really neat in Hebrew is that word, kana, is used both as uh, a noun, like it's his name, sorry, yeah, and it's also used as an adjective. It's like a descriptive term. God is described as being jealous, but his name is also jealous. Isn't that interesting? And so there's this twofold thing that's happening. And 
Again, when you look at the passage, and we, we flesh this out at least a little bit in the names thing, but, but the name Yahweh bespeaks of God's immutability. It speaks of his eternality. In other words, he was, he is, and forever will be who he is. So when God stands up and says, I am Yahweh, and I as Yahweh, my name is jealous, do you realize what that actually says or what that means? Is that he was jealous, he will he is currently jealous, and he will continue to be jealous. Why? This is so profound to me. Because he's in relationship. And Moses says, God, we are your possession. And God goes, you're right. You are my possession. Or if I may put it into the New Testament language, do you not realize that you were bought with a price? That we are his possession. Do you not recognize that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of the living God? You belong to him. But what's phenomenal in Scripture is he is our inheritance. And strangely, we are his. We are in this relationship. We are in this intimacy. And as such, God says, it's actually to your benefit that I am jealous. So let's unpack that a little bit more. When you define jealousy, here's a great way you can describe it or, or define it. Jealousy is the ardent or the passionate desire, get this, to maintain an exclusive devotion within a relationship in the face of a challenge to that exclusive devotion. Does that make any sense? Let me read it again. That jealousy is the ardent or passionate desire to maintain an exclusive devotion within a relationship in the midst or in the face of a challenge to that exclusive devotion. In other words, jealousy is wanting something that is yours, and jealousy always requires a relationship. So to help kind of flush this out a little bit, uh, let me give you the requirements of jealousy. This is, this is what Dan walked through, and this was so helpful for me just in understanding jealousy as a whole. But there are these four requirements to jealousy. And here they are. Number one, you have a lover. Number two, you have a beloved. Number three, you have a covenant relationship that is often and usually marked by love. And number four, there's actually a threat to that relationship or to that covenant. So there's this lover. Oh, I love you. And then there's this beloved whom he loves. And they're in this relationship of covenant and love. And yet in the midst of this relationship, there's a threat to that relationship. And when the threat shows up in the midst of a covenant of love, do you realize that it is almost demanded or it should be demanded that jealousy springs up in the midst of the lover to defend and protect the relationship and the covenant? So here's the key question in jealousy. Will I rise up and protect that relationship? Does that make any sense? No. Let's think about God. God is the lover. He has a bride, his, his beloved. And he's in a covenant relationship with his bride. And do you realize there is a threat to that relationship? That when there's the gods of culture... And the, the idolatry of the world begins to creep in into that relationship. And that bride begins to be distracted 
with the things of the world, do you realize it is actually a positive thing for jealousy to rise up in the one who loves the bride and says, I've got to stop the thing that threats that relationship. In order to maintain and guard the covenant, I'm going to have to bring a stop to the threat that is coming against the covenant. That's incredible, folks. Do you realize that God is jealous? And that is a very, very good thing. So think about this. God is glorified by the faithfulness of his people. And therefore, he responds with jealousy to their unfaithfulness. That, that when, when God, let me say it this way. When, when God's people walk in faithfulness and exclusivity of devotion unto him, do you realize that actually brings honor and glory and renown to the name, the majesty of, of our king? But the moment that we as his people are distracted and, and we get allured by the things of this world and, and we go after the other gods. Now, I understand in our culture, we don't have, we don't, most Christians don't go after Buddha statues. I get that. But do you realize that culturally we are wooed? We are wooed by entertainment. We are wooed by success. We are wooed by fame. We are wooed by money. We are wooed by, I mean, we, we are, our hearts are strangely drawn away. More often than not, to our own pleasure and to our own pride. That we're building our own social media kingdoms. We're building our own whatevers, right? That we're allowing the culture to define success. We're allowing the woo of fame and prestige and money and whatever it may be, right? That we're just walking in pride. We're walking in lust. We're walking in fear. We're walking whatever it may be. And those gods of our culture, do you realize are a threat to the covenant relationship that we have with our, our precious Jesus? And so when, when we as his people are drawn away or we are being distracted and we begin to walk in unfaithfulness, it is actually a phenomenal reality of God's nature that he says, but I am jealous over you. I, 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 can't, I can't have you doing this. Why? Because we are supposed to have an exclusivity of relationship, that I am to be your God and you are my people and, and there's supposed to be a holiness and a righteousness in this. And Are you getting this? And whenever there is a threat to that relationship, God says, do you, do you know what that does in me? I, I am jealous over you. And it's not out of envy. It's not out of anger. It's, it's actually a beautiful attribute because I love you. And so I'm actually going to guard and protect anything that's going to threaten that relationship. <clears throat> In other words, God's jealousy is directly tied to his love. And because he is love, he says, do you recognize that my name is jealous? So here's the thought. When there is unfaithfulness between a husband and a wife, we call it adultery. Now, we often in our modern culture think of adultery as the actual physical going against covenant. In other words, here's this man, he goes off with some other woman, oh, that's adultery. But do you realize that he could be committing adultery in his heart even if he never does anything physical? Pornography, do you recognize, is actually adultery. And Jesus says the same thing. You know, we've heard it said in the old, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, do you know what I'm actually dealing with? 
in the old covenant with adultery. It's not the physical, it's the heart. So when you walk in lust, you're actually committing adultery. And that's a threat. So in a, in a, in a marriage covenant with a husband and a wife, when there's unfaithfulness, it's called adultery. But think about this. In the covenant relationship between God and his people, unfaithfulness is either called scripturally adultery or idolatry. And as you begin to walk through that concept, do you realize those terms become really strong in the prophets? Uh, As you get into the prophets, do you realize that the number one message of the prophets, when you read through all the prophets, is not foretelling things in the future? That's not not the key message of the prophets. Do you know what the number one message of the prophets was? Repent. Turn. Why? Because your God has a relationship with you. And what have you done? Well, you've just gone off and polluted yourself with the world. And you've just gone off and you've done your own thing. And you're just doing... And what are the prophets doing? They're calling their people back to the exclusivity of devotion to their God. And the number one message throughout the prophets is repent, repent, return, return. Come and, and, and seek, your, seek the Lord. Seek his face. Walk in humility. Why? Because he loves you. And that maybe is best portrayed. Uh, Ezekiel, this is all over the book of Ezekiel. But this is probably best portrayed in the story of Hosea. That God has Hosea, this, this man, marry this prostitute, Gomer. And what you find in the story is that she keeps going and leaving the marriage bed and the covenant to continue to prostitute herself. And over and over and over, she would return to the world. And what you see Hosea doing is over and over and over going and and getting her and buying her back and and, and, and wooing her heart. And and in the middle of that whole thing, God looks at Hosea and says, Hosea, now, now you know how I feel. Because Hosea genuinely loved Gomer, which is so crazy in my mind. But Hosea genuinely loved Gomer, and God says, the same way that you feel, the same overwhelming just burden, the same just dread every time you wake up and she's not next to you. I mean, at that same pressure, just like, what's going on? Why am I not good enough for you? Like, like how, how, is, how is prostituting yourself with the world, how is that any better than the fact of the safety and the security of romance in this relationship. And I'm giving you everything that you need. And, and what, what more could you want? And yet Gomer is just, psst, and just, and God looks at Hosea and says, Hosea, now you know how I feel. That as Peter said, that in Jesus, we have everything we need for life and godliness. God, God has supplied everything that we need. And yet what do we do? We are strangely wooed away. And God looks at Hosea and says, Hosea, my people are doing the very same thing. And I keep going after them and I keep wooing their heart and I keep buying them back. And, and they keep just saying, well, thank you, God, for all the stuff you're doing. And, and yet I, I, I am madly in love with my, uh, my people. And I, I'm in a covenant bonds and, and there is a threat to the relationship. And I just, I just can't stand it. Why? Because I'm jealous. And I, I love this scripture in Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, where God says, It will be in that day, declares Yahweh, get this, that you shall call me Ishi. 
which is the Hebrew word for husband. And I will betroth you to me forever. Indeed, I will betroth you to me in righteousness. Listen to this. In justice, in loving kindness, in hesed, and in compassion. God says, Hosea, my, my people are doing the same thing as Gomer. But there's coming a day where my people will look at me and just say, ah, you're my husband. You're my ishi. You're everything that I need. What, what more could I want? So God says he is jealous to the extent that it is his name. He is love. And when anything attempts to bring a threat against his covenantal love out of a pure, good, and godly jealousy, he will rise up, judge, and remove that threat. And because jealousy is a part of his character and nature, think about this, and he lives within us, it should also be a part of our nature to stand against any threat to the purity and the simplicity of devotion to Christ Jesus. Do you realize that if God truly is jealous and he is guarded over his covenantal relationship and now he lives in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, shouldn't we be jealous over that same covenantal relationship? I, I walked through this in depth last summer when we were walking through the Soul Drift series and, and looking at the idolatry and adultery. But, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God gives Moses what we typically call the Shema. The, the word Shema means to hear or to listen. And, and listen, Shema, listen to what Deuteronomy 6 says about listening. And by the way, this is the, this is the daily prayer of the Jew. This is what they still pray every, every morning, every evening. This is, this is the number one, this is their John 3.16. This is the number one quoted passage. This is, like, this is it. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And you remember the story when the lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, hey, what is the greatest commandment in all, in all the scriptures? Jesus reaches back and says, it's the one you quote every single day. Love God with everything. I, I was reading through something just a couple of days ago, and there was a scholar, and he mentioned the Shema, and I loved how he expressed it. And so I screenshot it, and as I was preparing for this, I'm like, oh, I have that screenshot. So I tracked it down this morning, and, and li listen to how he says this. This is, this is how he uh, translates the passage. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is the one and only. So you should love Yahweh your God with all of your thinking, with all of your longing, and with all of your striving. Isn't that good? Man, I just, I really like that. Uh, last summer when I was walking to the Shema and we were, we really spent a study on each of these sections. So what does it mean to love God with all of our heart? What does it mean to love God with all of our strength, right? And, and as I was, I was just learning, it was, it was such a blessing to my soul because the things that I thought it was, it wasn't, it was beyond, it was so much better than I thought it was. But I took all that study and I basically put it in an amplified version. So here's, here is my version of the Shema Amplified Edition, okay? So Shema, or hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And you shall love Yahweh your God with a, co a covenantal, voluntary, passionate love where you worship and become more like the one you love the most. And I'm to love Yahweh my God with all of my inner person, my mind, my will, my emotions, my desires, my intentions, 
with the whole of my life, all that I am, and with everything that I have, my talent, my ability, my possessions, my money, my time, everything. In other words, do you know what the call of God on our lives are? It is to love God with all that I am and all that I have. That, that everything belongs to him. That everything is in this exclusivity of devotion and I am just madly pursuing him. Why? Because I just madly love him. Do you have that? Well, you know, I love God on Sunday mornings and sometimes Sunday nights. And when I'm really spiritual, maybe Wednesday nights. That, that, that's, that's not the idea of all. See, like, do, do you genuinely love God with everything? With the, the entirety of your being, with the entirety of all that you possess, do, do you genuinely love God? And are you protecting against any threat that comes against that love toward God? Can I remind and encourage us? We must be jealous for our God. And, and yeah, that's true in, in, our, in our marriages and in, in those covenantal relationships. That's very true. But do you realize that of utmost priority, you are to have jealousy over your relationship with the God of the universe. R really quick, I'm going to give you three illustrations of this in Scripture. These are very apparent. These are so profound to me. And you need to study these on your own. So we're just going to fly through these for the sake of time. But, but here are three quick illustrations of people in in Scripture, that lived with a godly jealousy, and they're commended for their godly jealousy. Uh, the first guy, his name is Phineas. Uh, Phineas was the grandson of, of Aaron, the, the high priest. <clears throat> and, and listen, in, in Numbers chapter 25, the, the story of Phineas. <clears throat> it says, Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought near to his brothers a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. So he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. Then the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Now, <clears throat> uh, that's an awkward passage. Uh-huh. And what you find as you study the context is, if you remember the whole story of Balaam, uh, the king of Midian was trying to hire Balaam to bring a curse on the people of Israel, and Balaam couldn't do it because he could only speak what God put in his mouth. And what you find later on is Balaam actually is a very corrupt man, and he basically, and this is what we can presume from, from Scripture, is that because he couldn't pronounce a curse upon Israel, he actually told the king what he should do. In other words, take your, take your women and basically go and entice them in and literally bring your gods into the midst of Israel and, it, and it'll, it'll destroy them. And then what you begin to see is that very thing begins to happen. And so here is this man of Israel and he doesn't just like secretly take a Midianite woman and bring, him in, bring her into his tent to sleep with her. Rather, he like arrogantly boasts about it and he just flaunts the fact that he has this pagan woman literally going against everything that God is saying and bringing her into his tent to sleep with her in front of all of Israel. And Phineas, think about this. Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, sees the threat that this is between the covenant relationship between Israel and, his, and God and says, I, I can't stand that. 
And he literally picks up a spear, walks into the tent, and kills him. And literally ends the threat. Now, that was physical. Okay? And if I may remind you, what is happening physically in the Old Testament is a picture of what is to happen spiritually in your soul. Okay? We don't pick up javelins and kill people. Okay? Please. And that's officially now on the recording. Don't kill people, okay? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our, our battle is against the, spirit, the spiritual principalities and powers. But do, but do you realize the same zeal and passion that Phineas had to jealously guard the relationship that God had with his people is the same zeal that you are to have in your covenant relationship with God? In fact, in, in the Psalms, David commends what Phineas did. Listen to this in Psalm 106. It says that they join themselves to Belpeor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked God to anger with their actions, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interceded so that the plague was checked. Think about this. And it was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Uh, Paul was, was commending Phineas about this whole thing in, in uh, the book of Corinthians. And, and listen to what Paul says. <clears throat> he says, he, he's using this as an illustration to the Corinthians, but he says, don't act in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. So this is the whole scene of the Phineas thing. And then he says, Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have arrived. In other words, Paul's saying, do you realize that what Phineas did is actually an example to how we are to live? So don't, don't engage in sexual immorality. Why? Because that's a threat against the covenant relationship that we have with our God. And just as Phineas stood up and literally ceased or ended that restriction or, or that violation or that threat to the covenant relationship between God and his people, guess what you should do in your life against the threat of sexual immorality? Put it to death. That, that it should not reign and control you. But folks, that is true about any threat. Lust, pride, greed, fear, whatever one you want to name, if it is a threat against your relationship with Christ, it is not to be allowed. Why? Because God is jealous and he lives in my life and now I must be jealous to guard and protect that covenant relationship. Uh, David is another great example of this. Uh, in the scene with David and Goliath, Saul called Goliath a man and a warrior. Do you know what David called him? An uncircumcised Philistine. And listen to this passage. This is awesome. 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who strikes down this Philistine and takes away, think about this, and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, and who should reproach, reproach the battle lines of the living God? David actually saw what was happening. It's not just a man coming against an army. It's not just a big giant coming against the people of God. David says, do you know what this guy is? He is a threat to our covenant. He is a reproach. He is a violation. He is a threat to the covenant. And he is mocking our living God. I'm going to put him down. Isn't that an amazing thought? That the moment that a threat came against the honor, the name, the reputation of David's God, David says, no. Not while I'm standing. And David sly, slew 
slays, slew. David cut the head off of, gi- of the giant and literally removes that threat. What if you did that with all the giants of your life? All those habits, all those addictions, all those things that are coming against you and are actually threats and violations of the covenant relationship, what if you would actually have the same zeal and passion that David had and said, I will not allow a reproach to remain against the character, the nature of my God. It will not remain in my life. That's jealousy. If you want one more example, Paul is a great picture of this as well. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that I might present you as a pure virgin in Christ. So, So think about this. Paul says, I introduced you to the groom. That, that, that I, I'm introducing you to him and I'm longing for there to be a purity. I'm longing for there to be this sacred covenant. I'm longing for there to be an exclusivity devotion. And so I'm going to guard that relationship. And then listen to Paul's conclusion of this. He says, but I fear as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness that your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. Do you realize that any time we allow a threat to come in, it is a threat against the simplicity and the purity of devotion we have to Christ? Do you realize that in the church, we have a lot of good things? We have a lot of religious things that actually become a threat to the covenant relationship we have with God. Does that make any sense? Uh, If I get wrapped up more in academics than I do in intimacy, do you recognize that the academics, though academics are good, that the academics become a threat to the simplicity and purity of devotion that I have with Christ? And there's a lot of Christians today who have a ton of head knowledge, but they're lacking any devotion and intimacy with Christ. They know all the theology. They know all the doctrine. Hey, they they can debate you up and down, but they have nothing. Do you realize that what is actually good, the academics, is now a threat to the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ? That, that if I get wrapped up in some certain doctrine and that little pet doctrine of mine becomes the obsession and the focus of my life, and you see this with so many things, uh, right now, end times is such a huge thing in the church. And I'm not against end times. Praise the Lord. The Lord is returning. Amen. The Lord's... Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I'm all for the return of Christ. But isn't it interesting? The moment I make in times my focus and it becomes the, the, the passion of my heart and all I talk about is the end times, strangely, not only do you get weird most of the time, but do you realize that that actually begins to be a threat to your relationship with Christ? And end times becomes more important to you than Jesus does. Well, end times is all about Jesus. I know, but you've made end times more important than Jesus. And in times, even though that's good and he's returning and I'm not against it and you should study it, but do you recognize that that becomes a threat to the simplicity and the purity of devotion we have in Christ? Well, it sounds like anything could be a threat. Yeah. If it draws you away from Jesus. Well, what does Jesus want? He wants an exclusivity, devotion, and intimacy with you. That, that he wants to be the centrality. He wants to be the preeminent one. That he wants to be the passion. He wants to be the focus. He wants just to be the, the throb of your heart. He wants to be the first thought on your mind and the last th- 
thought in the, at the end of the day. He, he, just, he just wants just to, he, he wants you to be obsessed. He just wants you to be consumed with him. He just, he just wants you to get all wrapped up in the reality of who he, are you getting this? And anything that comes against that, even if it's good and it's seemingly godly, that is actually a threat. I'm not saying throw out, don't throw out academics, please be smart. Hey, hey don't throw out spiritual gifts. Don't, don't throw out end times. But for so much of the church today, those have actually become a distraction from the purity and the simplicity of Christ. Would you be jealous against the threat of idolatry in your life? Because there's a lot of things in our culture today that are wooing our affections. And they're not bad, which is probably why we do them. Like, my guess is nobody in this room is going out murdering people on the weekends. If you are, come talk to me. We need to have an intervention. Okay, but, but my assumption is we're not doing that kind of stuff. But, you know, I might engage in this. I, I might find myself that, well, I'm actually defining success like the world defines success, or, I'm actually obsessed with money like the world is obsessed by money. Or I'm binge-watching Netflix like the world binge-watch Netflix. and that, that I'm seeking rest and refreshment and joy like the world seeks it. And it's not that it's bad and evil. It's just, it's a threat, though. Does that make any sense? I'm not against money. If you have it, I'll take it. Sure. I mean, <laughs> and we live in a world where you need a, you need a function with money. So I'm not, I'm not against money. That can't be your focus. I'm, I'm not against a movie. I'm against a lot of movies, but I'm not the concept. I, I enjoy a good movie, but that can't be my. What is it in your life that tends to distract you? That, that tends to woo your affections? What, what is it that actually begins to be the threat to the covenant relationship you have with your God? What is it that doesn't allow you to keep moving forward? For, for a lot of people, it's sin. It's fear, it's greed, it's lust, it's pride, whatever it is. That, that's a threat against your relationship. For, for a lot of other people, it's, it's not big things, it's little things that have just wooed our affections away. What if we'd actually guard against any form of idolatry or adultery in our relationship with Christ. Again, jealousy, it's that ardent, passionate desire to maintain an exclusive devotion within a relationship in the face of a challenge to that exclusive devotion. And there's always four pieces. There's a lover, a beloved, a covenant relationship that's usually marked by love. There's a threat or a violation to that covenant. So the question then is, will I rise up and protect that relationship. So think about this. Jealousy is God's name. It's his character. It's his reputation and honor. So jealousy for God's name then, for his character and for his nature and for his honor, will cause us to be extremely devoted to Christ. That if if I'm actually jealous in my relationship with him, it will cause me to be profoundly pure. That if I am jealous of my relationship with Christ, it will actually deepen my humility. 
It'll increase my holiness. And I won't wander or pursue another God or affection. See, if I would actually rise up and, and, and protect any, against any threat that comes against my relationship with Jesus, do you realize that my relationship with Jesus would get amazingly rich? It would get profoundly deep. And anytime I saw anything in my life, a, a mere thought that pops in and, and tries to distract or uh, and, uh, something that's trying to woo me away, do you realize that I'll be like, no. And like a Phineas zeal, I will put to stop to anything that's going to draw my affection away from the simplicity and purity devotion to Christ. Last summer, as I was walking through the idolatry stuff, here's, here's how I defined idolatry. It's looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. And do you recognize that if you are looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet your needs, to give you rest, to be your peace, to give you joy, to give you hope, to give you a sense of safety and security or protection, to remove your fear or whatever, even if it's good, it's still idolatry. And would you allow the Spirit of God to awaken and reveal anything in your heart and life, anything in your mind that becomes a threat to that covenant relationship with Him? In other words, would you jealously guard against any threat to your relationship with Jesus Christ? God's name is jealous. And that is a really, really good thing. Because I am his inheritance. I am his possession. And he will zealously guard my life to maintain that relationship. The question is, would I allow that same jealousy to infuse itself in my life and will I zealously guard my relationship with Christ against any threat, even if it is good? Jealousy is a good thing, folks. It is good because it protects and guards the relationship. And do you recognize a marriage needs that? If, if, if some husband sees his wife being drawn away to some other guy, he should have a measure of godly jealousy that says, uh, <clears throat> no. If a wife sees her husband dabbling in pornography, do you realize that there should be a godly jealousy that rises up and says, no. And that maybe it needs some counseling, right? There's probably some healing process. I get all that. That's true. If that's true in a marriage covenant, how much more in the covenant relationship we have with our God. Would you rejoice for the fact that our God is a jealous God who says, my name is Yahweh and I am jealous to the point that my name is jealous. Would you celebrate that fact and would you allow that reality to infuse itself in you and would you allow the Spirit of God to enable you to zealously, jealously guard that which you have with Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Oh Lord, I thank you that you are jealous. That you're not insecure. You're not envious. You're not mean and nasty. You are a God of love. And you will protect any threat 
against the relationship with your people. Lord, that is so good. Lord, that means that when you bring conviction in my life, that's a good thing. Because the conviction is, is going to pull, is going to awaken me to, to, the, to the violation or, or awaken me to the threat. And it's going to push me unto you as my solution. Lord, could I see conviction as a gift from you? Could I see the fact that you are, are zealously guarding my, my intimacy and relationship with you, that, that, that you, you, you won't let me be successful in sin, that you are just constantly coming after and bombarding me, just saying, just return, repent. I mean, I've got to change you. So, Lord, I thank you that you are jealous. But, Lord, would you make me jealous for you Lord, there are so many things in this world that, are, that cause distraction, that, that cause a pull of affection. And the church today, my goodness, we're so just, we are so wrapped up in idolatry and adultery and even good things. It's become such a distraction. Lord, Lord, could you cause a godly jealousy to rise up in our marriages? Could you cause a godly jealousy to rise up in our families? Could you cause a godly jealousy where we just have a burden and we begin to weep over what is happening in the church today, your bride? But Lord, could we have a godly jealousy over our relationship with you? Would you not allow us to justify sin? Would you not allow us to, to pamper and, 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 and prod ourselves like, like the culture does? Lord, not, don't let us... Be wooed by the gods of this culture. Lord, let us stand and zealously go after you. And anytime there is a threat to that simplicity and purity of devotion, Lord, may that threat be removed in the power of Jesus Christ for your honor, glory, and renown so that you would be lifted high and exalted and made more majestic. We love you, Jesus. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. I hope that study in God's name, Kana, the idea of God being jealous, actually turns our gaze heavenward and reminds us that the fact that God is jealous is a great thing for us. And it's something that we absolutely need to have in our relationship with Jesus Christ as well. Well, thank you for listening. And if you like show notes for this episode, you can find all of that by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash 294 for episode 294. And there I'll have a downloadable link where you can get a PDF of the notes that I went through in this particular study. Well, until next time, know I'm cheering you on. I'm praying for you as we continue to build our lives and protect that intimate covenantal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ our precious Savior, whose name is Jealous. See you next time.